Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Well, Joey, it's Tuesday night. We were hoping to have these out a little bit earlier, but it's not a big deal. It's been a busy week for both of us. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, people sent in some really wonderfully challenging questions. Oh, man, and you're so telling me. We just needed all the time to think about it. And so, yes. Um, and so, special, yeah. uh, uh, we're going to do something special this week. We're going to turn the tables and I'm going to ask Claire the questions. <laughs> and- no one wants to know my answers. <laughs> It's got no wisdom. No. Um, yeah, people are going to be very thankful that you're the one answering these. And um, I just feel like people should buckle up and get ready because they are really great and difficult questions. And I'm so glad they sent them in. Okay. Well, without further ado then, huh? Without further ado, would you give us a recap of your sermon from Sunday and like kind of how we've progressed along the way? It's our third right, out of four right. weeks. And so if you could just kind of tell us where do we sit right now in the grand scheme of this teaching, overall teaching, and then what was mm-hmm. Sunday really about? Yeah, great. So uh, last Sunday was three of four. Um, week one was looking at the basic sort of background beliefs, the things that Jesus took for granted and didn't need to explain because it's just the way, you know, Genesis one and two informs, uh, informed his beliefs. Um, so that was, you know, the beginning, like, Hey, we are embodied souls. What is, what did Jesus think a marriage was some of those basic questions? Um, the second week was looking at, okay, his teaching about adultery in that context. Like how is he driving us back towards the heart in this issue? And then this week was saying, okay, uh, given that, how does Paul, and, you know, we could have looked at Peter or, or the other early church authors uh, in scripture or outside of scripture and said, how did they apply this in a very permissive, anything goes culture? And so specifically, we went to first Corinthians six and seven, where at the end of six, beginning of seven, Paul says, uh, essentially boils it all down to like, look, you know, we could make all these arguments about why sexual immorality in their case, there's a specific cultural thing going on, but we could make all these arguments about why it's wrong. Like, Hey, it's against the rules or, Hey, it's uh, you know, it's inefficient. You're going to get sick. You're going to destroy families. You're going to, you know, all, all these things. Right. Um, or, but what he ultimately says is like, look, you don't belong to yourself. You have been bought and paid for. Um, you don't own yourself. You don't get to decide in every area of life where your limits are. And I mean, that is like the big problem we have, I think, with all of these questions is why does God get to decide for me what's right, what's wrong, what I get to do and what I don't get to do? And, you know, we would, I don't think we, most people would say, why does God get to decide? They'd say like, why does, you know, this church get to decide or who says your way of reading this is right? Um, Who says that you're the one who gets to decide for me what I should do? Because in this area, we're like, no, this, I get a hundred percent control of this area. Nobody tells me otherwise. Anyone who tells me otherwise needs to be, you know, uh, rejected. And so as Christians, like, I'm not saying, you know, for non-Christians, Hey, you are your own. Um, but for Christians, we don't get to get away with saying, I decide what God meant when he says these things, like we don't belong to ourselves. We don't set our own limits. We don't have sovereignty over ourselves. 
we don't get to choose. It's it's pretty black and white. All right. Well, I'm just okay. I we have like a list of questions I want to get through, and I already have a follow up question, Joey. If it's as simple as that, if it's as black and white as that, then how do churches disagree? Churches who claim to be biblically based, mm. we're based in the Bible, and yet we have different denominations who practice this area differently. Talking specifically in areas of of sexual ethics. Yeah. 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 It, like well, if we don't get to decide, and it should be as easy as what the Bible says, and it's as easy as what God has said as mm-hmm. authority over our souls and our bodies, but yet we're disagreeing with other Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the easy answer is sin, right, obviously. Um, I think a more nuanced answer would say, well, we, we do disagree. Different Christians disagree about the role and authority of Scripture in our lives, as well as how much should we um, try to take specific teachings, you know, Paul and Romans or the Levitical law or something like that and say, well, hey, that applies only to its time. You know, if I have the authority to decide what parts of scripture only apply to the time in which they were written um, versus applying more universally, then I'm able to take things that I do or don't want to do or that I want to make other people do or allow other people to do and say, well, hey, that's culturally bound. So therefore you don't have to do it. Or actually now you can go do this thing that you want to do. And that's a pretty big source of it. It really does come down to um, the role of authority, scriptural authority in our lives and the debates about who even authoritatively gets to decide what scripture authoritatively says that's a huge debate between like Catholic and Protestant branches. Catholicism places authority within the magisterium, the tradition of interpretation. Protestantism has said, no, it's in the individual and the spirit. Um, the problem or the difficulty Protestantism has run into is if the highest authority is me and what I feel subjectively that the spirit has taught me, well, then there really is no unifying interpretation or authority. So a lot of Protestants will go back to things like the Nicene Creed or other creeds or different, um, you know, later creeds, whether it's Westminster Confession or the the Baptist Creed or the Heidelberg or whatever, uh, or different statements of faith at different times and say, no, this is the one we're going to say is authoritative. And that's the one we're going to say is authoritative. But in all of those circumstances, because, you know, we believe, hey, it's, it comes down to me and the spirit, we're still individually choosing to submit ourselves to a broader authority. We don't automatically believe that that authority is there already and valid without us submitting to it. Mm So scriptural authority is really, I guess, where it comes down to. And that's a whole nother huge long conversation. Okay, cool. Okay, well, thanks for answering. Um, Okay, so someone had mentioned, they texted in, they said, Joey didn't spend much time covering verse 19. That would be chapter Uh, Verse 18. It was verse 18. 18? Oh, okay. I put it in my notes wrong. And then... um, Yeah, the person texted it to you wrong. That's fine. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) And then on to chapter seven. Um, So, hey, did you run out of time? Did you get cut for time? Or did you think, oh, these are too tricky. Let's ignore them for right now. So I, I definitely bet off more than I could chew, like planning it out ahead of time. I'm like, yeah, I can cover that whole section. And then I get into it. I'm like, oh, this is a sermon series. Oh man. Okay. Well, here's what's important to cover. Mm. So, but this is cut for time. I can walk us through it. Yeah. And I won't so. cut anything from what you have okay. to share. All right. So yes, I left out some stuff on in verse 18. Here's why. 
um, interpreters are divided between um, whether or not a particular statement in verse 18 is a quote of what the Corinthians were saying that Paul is somewhat agreeing with, somewhat refuting, or if it's Paul's own statement himself. So flee from sexual immorality, no concerns there. Yes, this is what Paul's saying. But then the next statement, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Is that Paul saying that? Or is that the Corinthians saying that? Is he quoting them? And the reason it's a debate is because the word other isn't in the Greek. In, in Greek, it says every sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, the, the word that is translated every could mean every other in some circumstances, but really you would translate it one way or the other, depending on who you think is, is saying this. If it's the Corinthians saying it, then they are saying like, hey, uh, Paul's saying, hey, you believe, you say every sin, yeah, every, you know, every sin a person commits is outside the body. So like, you know, sin is a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. Therefore, my body's not involved at all. All sin is outside the body. And he's saying, uh, yeah, but there is a sin and the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is a sin that is against his own body. So it could be that's the Corinthians perspective and he's kind of pushing back on it, or it could be his own. He's saying, you know, hey, every other sin, every other sin we're talking, we could be talking about is outside the body, but this one is very specifically against the body, right? Against the physical body. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to take a couple minutes to like lay out the interpretive, like who's saying what and how does that apply and how would it change the way we understand the whole thing because I didn't have time. So mm -hmm. I just kind of glossed over it. Either way, you can get to the point where Paul is essentially saying the same thing. He's not concerned about the other sins. He's saying this one is especially uh, grievous for some reason. Um, whether you whether he's quoting their misguided theology or this is his uh, statement, whether he you know right. one way or the other. So that's just you know I just kind of went to the main point and, and left it. So okay. Okay. Yeah. So then what about chapter seven? <laughs> okay. What about chapter seven? Well, so chapter seven has some of the same issues. So bear with me. And if you, uh, if you are the kind of person who, you know, looks at two different translations at the same time, you can see the different interpretive decisions that have to be made in the difference between the ESV and the NIV. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So when Paul, okay, so Paul begins chapter seven, verse one, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then there's a colon, right? So is this, are you reading ESV for us right now? Uh, I'm reading the ESV for us. Okay. Yeah. So I'll read the ESV and then make comments about how the NIV does it differently. Since okay. we don't have like, it's not a visual medium. I can't put these up in columns next to each other or anything. Mm -hmm. So for those of you watching along at home, um, so now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's on the same topic, but he's shifting specifically again to something they said. Here's the question. In the ESV, the next sentence is in quotes. So this is what they wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he's quoting them. This is their belief that like, look, if this thing, if what you say about sex is true, like it is so dangerous, it would be better if we just never, you know, if even within a marriage, we, we, you know, uh, we, we stayed chaste, celibate within uh -huh. the marriage, right? Mm -hmm. If, um, well, let me keep going with, with that line. So this is what the Corinthians say, okay? So then verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, that's a euphemism for, should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In other words, like, okay, you guys are saying like, it would be better Within even within marriage, if we were never intimate, he's saying, but 
you are opening yourselves up to temptation. Why would you do that? Like that's, that's a, it's a bad belief. Um, and, and it's causing these problems. You're opening yourselves up to temptation. And so like within your marriage, like if every, every wife should sleep with her husband, every husband should sleep with his wife. Like that's, so he's saying, you know, don't, don't, especially in, in marriages where you can see how this might happen from a pastoral perspective, where like one person feels that it's more spiritual to refrain from intimacy and the other doesn't. And he's writing to both of them saying, this is not going to work, right? You're supposed to be with each other. Okay. So then verse three, um, and verse three is this great equalizing uh, line, especially in a context in which women had no rights uh, over their husbands. Mm. It says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. She has a right and an expectation to, um, to be frequently intimate or to be intimate with her husband. And likewise, the wife needs to give to her husband um, his rights for intimacy, right? Because verse four, and this is where it connects to what was said in chapter six, the wife does not have authority over, uh, or yeah, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, right? Each, yeah. it's, it's a further expansion of the, you are not your own. You are a one flesh union. So you each have authority over the other and you each have a right to uh, intimacy with each other, which shouldn't be, read or understood, I don't think, in sort of a crass, like you each have the right to be pleased by the other person. It's you each have the right, the privilege, the responsibility of opening to one another and of renewing this covenant uh, in, in your active intimacy together. You have, like, this is built in, it's baked into what a marriage is, right? Yeah. So uh, verse five comes along and he says, so don't deprive one another. The word deprive is, is literally defraud. Don't defraud someone of their marital rights don't deprive one another ex and and then this except perhaps by agreement um is say he's he's making a very strong statement like don't force the other person to become celibate in your marriage unless okay um you decide that you're going to do it for a limited period of time because you're going to focus on prayer but even then come back together because you you don't want to leave yourselves or leave this other person you love open to temptation by being overly spiritual, more spiritual than you need to be. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Here's where verse six gets interesting. Because um, he goes on and says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. Question, is verse six pointing forward or pointing backwards? In other words, is I say this indicating what is to follow or what he just said previously? The way I read it, um, and this is uh, the same way the ESV reads it, maybe, though I, I would probably bump this sentence up and make it part of the previous paragraph, because he says, here's a concession. There's a concession in verse five. Don't defraud each other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. I say that as a concession, not a command. So even then he's saying, look, I'm not commanding you to take, to, to fast from intimacy in order to pray. I'm just saying, like, if you want to focus on, on prayer for a while, like, then okay. that's okay. That's a concession. Okay. Then verse seven comes along and he says, um, you know, as for me personally, I wish that all were as I am, uh, which is to say celibate, but each has his own gift. He's implying like my celibacy is a gift. Um, each has his own gift, one of one kind, that's celibacy and one of another, that's marital intimacy, mm -hmm. right? So he is not saying that this concession is not him saying, you know what, the really spiritual thing is to be uh, unmarried, but you know, because of temptation, we're going to let people get married. 
the concession is referring to the taking a fasting from sex in marriage in order to focus on prayer. That's the concession. The main point of this passage is, hey, um, marriage is a gift. Single celibacy is a gift. People have different kinds of gifts. Now, that's the, that's the ESV interpretation of it. If you read the NIV, the NIV does not put, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship relations with a woman in, um, in quotes. They yeah. make it, uh, they interpret it as this is what Paul's saying. And it reads like this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, here's Paul's command, it, or his, here's what he says is true. It is good for a man not to marry, but since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. In other words, the best thing is for everyone to be single, mm-hmm. but because there's so much temptation to immorality, you should probably get married because, and then you go further down, it's like, because it's better to, you know, better to get married than to burn, right? Um, in verse nine. Uh, but I don't think that's his point. I mean, Paul was thoroughly Jewish. There's a high view of marriage in Jewish scriptures. There's a high view of, of, of physicality, of materiality, of what the body is, what the body means, which is not true in the Greco-Roman context. There's very much a like spirit good, body bad sort of perspective um, becoming popular at the time or becoming kind of baked into the way everybody thought. Uh, He's not that kind of a a, a thinker. He is very materially oriented. Like this is good. This is all good. He's in favor of marriage, not as a lesser estate or as a lower calling or as a uh, you know, uh, just a remedy for lust. Um, he's saying it's a gift, right? right? It's a gift. Um, so again, I would have needed another like 15 minutes or have skipped all of chapter six. So I could go straight to, to chapter seven, yeah. uh, to cover that stuff. So yeah. I don't know. I'm sure that brings up more questions. Well, I mean, so. I'd like to just say, why not go into verse eight and nine, a word to the unmarried. Sure. Um, sure. Well, if I went to eight, nine, then I'd have to go to 10 through 16. Um, You know, the word of the unmarried and the words of the married. So, And I uh, even looked up uh, the passage that you're going to preach on Sunday. I was like, maybe he's just going to get to this on Sunday. No, you're not. You're going back to Matthew. We're back in Matthew 5. Yeah, Yeah. I I didn't finish that earlier when you asked where we were in the whole scheme of things. This Sunday is talking about divorce. Okay, we've talked about lust, adultery now, uh, divorce, marriage, all that. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, so eight and nine. So Paul is saying, um, again, we got to read verse seven here as his saying like, Hey, what I've found for me, I like, I I wish that everybody could be like I am. I wish everyone could be um, basically a self-employed itinerant uh, preacher who is free uh, to free to move, free to travel, free to be on mission without any of the limitation that comes with having a spouse and kids and a business and all that stuff. Right. He says elsewhere. And I forgot to look it up. He's like, if, if, if you're married, then your concerns are for your wife, for your husband. Right. Right. You know, you've bound yourself to more and you are not as free to pursue God. Um, I don't want to say wholeheartedly, but whole, you know, (laughs) calendarily as, as you can when, you know, when you're single. Um, and so that's what he's saying here, his calling, his gifting. He's like, man, I wish we were all just an army of evangelists. Um, all free to do this, but we're not. And, and then he, he goes on the, you know, an eight, he says, so look, if you're unmarried, if you're a widow, like it is good for you to remain single. Now, that of course was incredibly countercultural at the time. This is in a context in which um, if a woman was unmarried from, was of marriageable age and unmarried for more than two years, Caesar would find the person. 
you'd start getting fines that you'd have to pay because they're considered a drain on this on society um, without anyone to care for them. So your husband dies, you got to remarry within two years. Um, you're of marriageable age, but you're not married. You know, you got to get married. And the only way to make a living as an adult single female is essentially prostitution. No jobs are really open to you. You have to be bound to a household of some sort. So for Paul to come along and say, yeah, but no, in our family, the family of faith, it's okay to be unmarried. It is okay to be a widow and unmarried, to choose to remain single. Yeah. Um, that is a totally valid way of living your life. And like, no one has said this before in any context. Mm -hmm. um, no one thought that was okay. Um, he says, but if the self-control required that comes along with that li lifestyle is outside of grasp, outside of your grasp, then, then marry. Because um, it's better for you to, to marry, even if you, you, you know, being single means you're free to follow God wherever he leads in whatever way. Um, still, if that's a huge temptation, a huge issue and struggle for you, then marry. Uh, it's better to marry than to burn. Mm -hmm. And I'm just reading this alongside as you're talking, I'm just reading it as well. And um, is this only applicable to widows? Like what about divorced? Um, right. divorced individuals. Sure. Yeah. I'll say the same thing to, to the divorced. Yeah. Uh, well, so he goes on, um, in the next couple of verses to say to the married, right. Especially in mixed religion <laughs> marriages yeah, where like yeah. one person comes to Jesus and the others don't, um, he's saying, look, if, if don't leave your husband, don't leave your wife because they're not a Christian. Like they weren't when you married them, you weren't when you married them. Um, but you've now come to know Jesus. Look, don't leave. Um, if they leave you, that's okay, right? You, you can't make them stay yeah. um, if they leave you. But he says there, yeah, um, in verse 11, um, the wife should not separate from her husband, but in almost in parentheses there, but okay, but if she does, or she did already, then she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Like rebuild that marriage, but, but don't don't just go get married again if you are have already separated. Um you know, and he goes on uh, in the rest and says, look, if, if you, you know, if you come to the Lord and your wife is willing to stay, then don't, don't divorce her. If your husband's willing to stay, don't divorce him. Um, because, and there's some really complex verses in 14, 15, 16 about, you know, the unbelieving husband sanctified or made holy because of his wife and vice versa. And it's, and what is he talking about with unclean children? I have no idea. So, uh, um, <laughs> Would but have, it, I would have given you more prep time for that. Yeah, that's okay. But it does appear, you know, by the time he gets to verse 16, he's saying, okay, look, if you've come to Jesus and you're in a marriage now where the other person is like, well, what is going on here? If they're willing to stay, stay with them. You don't know. You may end up leading them to Christ by your testimony. Um, right. So, yeah, this is super complicated stuff. It is hotly debated and has been yeah. debated for centuries. Um so you and I aren't going to solve it right now, um, but I think the way I'm reading it makes sense of what Paul's trying to get across. Okay. So you're going to be tackling this topic of divorce this Sunday. Yes. Um, so I will come back to this passage a little bit. I, I want to, I wish I could know what to anticipate going into this Sunday. Like, should there be a warning or a disclaimer for people? Like, we all know or love someone or has have experienced divorce mm -hmm. ourselves and so this is going to be like a really probably a tough Sunday for many individuals where there are potential wounds or um, challenges that are kind of going to be in the way 
like we're filtering your interpretation sure. of this scripture through a lot of hurt, whether it's mm -hmm. our own um, experience or somebody walking alongside alongside mm -hmm. somebody that we love who have experienced divorce. So um, any disclaimer or like prayer for our congregation or your hope or desire as we prepare our hearts for the Sunday? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you just gave a great disclaimer. Um, yeah, it is... Uh, my pastoral anxieties are high going into this Sunday because these are some of the hardest sayings of Jesus and they become harder for cultures where divorce is prevalent uh, and easy. Uh, if we were reading Jesus in Mark or in Luke, it would be even harsher. He just says um, basically no divorce. Uh, in Matthew, he says no divorce except in cases of uh, some sort of sexual immorality and what exactly that means. Everybody argues about um, what is difficult about understanding Jesus's teachings there is, well, how, how do we get to then Paul in first Corinthians seven, giving yet another, okay. For divorce, Jesus says, you know, only it's only allowed if the other person has already broken the covenant through sexual unfaithfulness. And then Paul says, well, yeah, but also they could just leave and then you don't have to stay with them you know abandonment is also valid it's like okay what's the connection do those two logically make sense together uh, is that the only two are there more right and anyway i'm getting into the logical like exegetical side of it that's not the, so much the stuff that gets me anxious as it is standing in front of people who i know love people who have gone through divorce who have themselves gone through divorce who have struggled to rebuild a life after an unwanted divorce um, somewhere, I don't know how long ago I read, um, that the, the only thing worse than divorce is the death of a child in terms of how it just hits a person, sure. uh, mentally and emotionally, psychologically. Um, and, and this is even to talk about like the effect of divorce on kids of the couple who divorce. Like there is so much pain around this topic that it I, I don't know if I'm up to like, if literally if my preaching skills are up to the task of preaching well on this topic without adding additional pain. Mm. Um, so you can pray for me. Um, and and I, I'll, I'll be doing my best to try to say like, Hey, let's, let's hear what Jesus is saying, how Paul's applying it. We'll come back to first Corinthians seven, a little bit, how, how Paul's thinking about this a little bit, but okay. And, and I'm still working on Sunday sermon. So, you know, I don't have my bottom line down or anything or like my main point that I'm getting at, but I, I think there's, there's two, at least two areas. I know I need to spend some time on uh, among other things. One is like the, if, if we're going to divorce passages in order to find justification to get out of a situation that we're in a difficult situation we're in, like, that's not the point of the divorce passages um, in order to, you know, check the right boxes. I mean, I said difficult um, sincerely because there's a difficult difference between a difficult marriage and a destructive marriage. And, and I'll, I'll try to define what I mean by that on Sunday. Um, so on the one hand, there's the sense of like, hey, the, the point of these, of Jesus in, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is to go to the heart again. It's not about, um, it's not about trying to figure out how to get out of a marriage. It, the point is, what's your heart posture that wants to get out of it? And why aren't you wanting to make it better, you know, to work in it? So there's that side of it, but there's also 
in terms of these two things I know I need to spend time on. The other side of it is simply the, the care for those uh, who have experienced this pain, who, who may have caused this pain to others, who may have caused this pain to their children, um, who may have caused it, you know, the, and the pain was an inevitable part of a covenant already having been broken for one reason or another. It's just, yeah, it, it's going to be um, difficult. Yeah, I mean, I sincerely hope that as people listen to this podcast, they are prompted to pray for you. I'm sure, I know people have been praying, you know, for you Mm -hmm. for weeks leading up to this when I heard that we would be tackling this topic months ago when we were talking about, you know, upcoming sermon series. Mm -hmm. It immediately prompted me to begin praying for you and for Jeff because Mm -hmm. I don't envy this position at all, the burden of preaching through very difficult passages praying that like your pastoral heart comes through the message as well as, you know, like preaching through the text and not compromising either one of those. Mm-hmm. It's just been really tricky. You've done a great job. So um, anyways, I hope people are prompted to be praying for you in anticipation for this Sunday. Well, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's jump back in because um, yeah. we've just gotten started. <laughs> You were like, like one question in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So, um, woof. All right. In verse 16, Paul says that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. Mm-hmm. Um, practical. What's the practical implication of this now for us, for people who have sinned sexually outside of their marriage mm-hmm. or prior to being married? And does this affirm this idea of being damaged goods that, you've lost something that you yes, can't get back yes. or um, right. where your sin has marred an otherwise good thing that's irreparable. Yeah. How does that play out? Hmm. Okay. So a couple thoughts. Number one, um, damaged goods is a, uh, even goods is a horrible word to use about a person, right? You know, you're, you're a thing, you're a product, you're, you're like a box of uh, Cheerios with a, with a busted corner or something like that. Right. Horrible word to use of a person. Um, there's been, you know, in, in nineties purity culture that I grew up in, there was the, the two pieces of tape that you stick together and unstick and stick together and unstick and you stick under the couch and you stick into other people. And at the end of, you know, sticking it on 30 people, you're like, Oh, my tape's not sticky anymore. And it's like, okay. Or the rose, right? Does Jesus yeah. really want a rose that everybody sniffed and, and all of that? Um, it's like, okay, people aren't tape roses or goods. Okay. So people can't, gain or lose value uh, in the same way that a rose can or a piece of tape can. So there's, that's one thing I want to say. A tape, a piece of tape gets less sticky, right? When you've stuck it to 30 different things. Um, A person's ability to enter into a one flesh covenant, um, their ability doesn't degrade over time with repeated sexual sin. Their temptations may increase, their, um, their struggles may increase, but they're, uh, they can still enter into a one flesh union and a covenantal one flesh union. Now, what Paul's doing here in first Corinthians 16 it, or first Corinthians six <clears throat> verse 16 is he's, he's trying to say like, look, the, the point of the union of sex is to image something so much deeper, a f- whole life, whole body, you know, union of mind, body, spirit, will, you know, all those things we talked about in the last couple of weeks. So when he says, don't you know, when you unite, like 
you are tr- you are trying to act out as if you are one flesh with this person. Um, so he's not. I don't think he's trying to say, "Hey, you have now um, formed a fully orbed covenantal one flesh union with this person." I think he's trying to say, "You are acting out as if you did," and you, you can only ever do that with one one person until death. So. Do you see the do you see the inconsistency here? Um, I'm tempted to say, do you see the damage you're causing? But I don't mean damage in the sense of like you're you're damaging the other person. Now they're damaged goods. You know they're not as you know they're not as good as someone who's kept themselves pure, mm-hmm. right? Yes, and f- just so people who are listening know, you were using air quotes. Air kept, quotes. Yes, yeah, thank you. As sarcasm. Yes. 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 I should lay it on a little thicker. Well, you know, we have a God who came back from the dead. And if anything is irreparable, it's usually death, right? So I'm, I'm not going to put anything beyond the limits yeah. of, of God's redemptive restorative power. Mm-hmm. Um, God can make anything new again, including um, <clears throat> the, the sort of the sexuality of a person who has been, who has spent a lifetime just longing to be loved, um, but has gone looking for that in so many different ways and places that have ultimately left that person unloved and um and in in finding it even more difficult to love Mm -hmm. but god can god can redeem and repair anything and everything yeah and that's not without like work or effort right right not without work or effort yeah or with um you know counselor yeah um so it's not that it's uh, impossible or that they're not able to enter into this one flesh union, it would take right. work and effort um, and repentance, but also it is like this person is not beyond repair. For sure. And I think it's important to recognize that what Paul's doing in verse 16 is he's arguing against a perspective that says this means nothing, right? So a perspective that says this means nothing, he's saying, no, this means something. He's not arguing against a perspective where we're saying this means everything. And he's like, no, see, when you do it, you, you know, you damage yourself. That's not his point. His point is you're saying this means nothing. I'm telling you, no, there's some meaning to this thing here. Yes. Right? Yeah. Not, it's like yeah. the lie that our culture says of like, it's just physical. It's a physical expression or right. it's just a, like, it's not a big deal. It's not emotional at all. Um, it, so he's saying he's just raising the bar and he's saying, no, this is, this is important. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's ironic somewhat that the purity culture perspective of damaged goods both says, Hey, sex is not that big of a deal. And also, um, Hey, if you do it wrong, like you are forever scarred. Right. And, and Paul, I think would be against both of those perspectives. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, it is a big deal, but no, you're not, you're not irreparably damaged for life. Right. Well, let's come back to that. When you're talking about purity culture, it just makes me think about how we're addressing this with our kids. So we have a question like that that we're going to address at the end. We'll come back to it. All right. So in light of this idea of having uh, sin entering a marriage, whether Mm -hmm. uh, before being married or Mm -hmm. during um, in marriage, last week we did probably put a lot of emphasis on the pornography culture and men though right. easily pornography culture for men and women right for sure either one or both individuals bringing in this baggage from the prosperity sex gospel or pornography culture all of these lies that we receive um, if we realize that we've been influenced by this lie in some way 
in our marriage, before marriage or in marriage. How can you break free from some of those long-held misconceptions and beliefs? Hmm. Yeah, well, this question, and, and especially some of the others in here, really just make me want to say, I don't know who asked it, but if you, let's just buy, can I buy you a cup of coffee um, and we can talk, um, or my wife and I can talk with you, right? Because it's like, there's, you know, there's real stories underneath these. Um, boy, it, it's, a, it's a tough question. If you've realized you've been influenced, well, influenced in, in what way really, you know, informs how you would, how you would break free. Um, oh boy. So there's some stereotypical ways we could say that people are influenced by pornography culture and, um, and purity culture, vice versa, right? If you believe a, if you are a, a you know, perfect husband or a perfect wife, you do all the right things. Um, God will bless you. That's a, that's a problem. Okay. Um, if you believe that when you come home, you know, this is generally men. Um, but if you believe when you come home at the end of the day, uh, you deserve sex and your wife has a, oh, it's right there in, you know, chapter seven, a conjugal, you have a conjugal right. And she has a conjugal duty to give it to you. Right. Um, that's messed up. Okay. Paul, even in this passage is not appealing to, he's not telling these people appealed for your rights. He's saying, look, don't do you understand your spouse has a right, um, that you should fulfill. He, he never demands it. And besides, if you're a, you know, whether you're a husband or a wife, I think you would prefer it that your spouse, uh, you know, joyfully go to bed with you out of joy, not duty. So, um, if that's you, you know, recognize that, um, if you believe, and this is stereotypically women, but if you believe that, um, Hey, this, this marriage relationship is the relationship that will make everything right. Like this is the thing that will make you happy. That will make you feel whole, you know, all of those things. I shouldn't even say that stereotypically women. Cause as soon as I'm saying, it, I'm like, no, that's a lot of guys too. Mm. Um, except for guys, it's less about feeling whole and happy. And it's more about feeling respected and feeling, um, you know, manly or, uh, like they they can control, you know, that you can, you can run something, you can do something, right. Because yeah. your wife always submits or whatever. Um, if you think and put all of your weight on this relationship is the thing that's going to make me feel worth it in some way or another, um, like you, then you have to confront that and say, it's not right. My, my spouse is not going to complete me. My spouse is not going to be my everything or make everything feel, you know, feel good, feel better, feel whatever, right? There's no apocalyptic. I said apocalyptic because um, in a book written like 30, 40 years ago, a book called The in, um, Denial of Death, Ernst Becker writes that uh, our culture is the first, meaning Western secular culture is the first culture that says, hey, if there's no transcendent God, then you've got to look somewhere else for meaning. And we're the first ones to say like, well, maybe relationships are where you find that meaning. So he talks about needing to have apocalyptic, meaning uh, apocalyptic relationships and apocalyptic sexual encounters, meaning these are the things that reveal to you, like, yes, this is what I was made for, right? Yeah. No person can carry the weight of that. No person can, you know, yeah. you can't be your husband or your wife's full satisfaction. Yeah. So there's definitely that. Um, I would highly recommend um, a book called The Great Sex Rescue. Yeah, you mentioned um, that our first episode, I think. Yes, yeah, it's a really good one. So um, I bought it because it had been recommended to me and then my wife took it and read it and it, she says the first nonfiction book she's finished um, and since like graduating from college because she's, uh, she's much more into the, the fiction side of things and um, which is why she's such a great storyteller. Check out the podcast feed for her uh, faith story. 
little name drop. <laughs> Shameless cross promotion. Um, right. Yeah. Anyway, so she finished reading the book and gave it back to me and said, "This ex- this captures everything I was taught." in high school and college, growing up kind of in evangelicalism and explains why for so many people like me, um, the, the very idea of intimacy is so terrifying and so emotionally fraught, right? Yeah. Because she was taught like that um, most men are, are sexual deviants who are just doing anything and everything and just, you know, whatever they can get away with. But she was taught that if she doesn't, maintain a certain level of beauty, a certain level of attractiveness, a certain level of sexual availability, then it's her fault if I have an affair. Right. Right. It's just ridiculous. You know, that's anyway, mm-hmm. um, makes me angry. So, yeah. um, I, so I highly recommend that book, especially for those of us kind of in our age cohort that, you know, grew up signing true love weights cards and, um, we're told, I think I said something like this last Sunday that, man, if we just, uh, if we were pure before marriage, God was going to give us an amazing playground. Right. Right. Which isn't true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Well, that's just, that's a huge question. So, Hey, if you identify with this question, um, you know that some sort of misconception, whether it's from the purity culture or from mm-hmm. pornography culture, anywhere in between, um, has influenced your marriage, and mm-hmm. or uh, you could be a single person. Let's be honest, right? Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, I just neglected to even say that. So even singles, of course, this could influence the way that they think mm-hmm. about themselves as a sexual being. For sure. um, talk to you, talk to Jeff, if they feel comfortable. What if a woman doesn't want to come talk to a man about this? Yeah. What are, who are some like women that we could just point to, to say, talk to these ladies. Can you want to make a list? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that available off the top of your head, mm-hmm. but someone safe that they could talk to um, and they could just start to hash it out and figure out Mm -hmm. what are those misconceptions and how can we break free from these um, and be able to grow? Yeah, uh, I'd say, so I'm going to, again, my wife is incredible. She's a very safe person to talk to. Whenever I'm asked to do premarital counseling, we do it together. And, um, you know, when we talk openly with couples about sexual intimacy, like she, she sits down with the wife to be and says, here's the things no one's going to tell you, right? Because no one's, everyone's embarrassed to say. And so she's had that role in uh, the lives of a number of young women uh, at and around faith, as well as um, with a lot of our uh, friends, she's ended up being the person that people have gone to when they're like, it's not working and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And she, so she's a very safe person. She's going to hate the fact that I said this out loud. Uh, um, people are going to start texting her and, and talking Listen to her. To yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if she listens to cut for time, so we'll find out. Um, but yeah, she's, she's incredible. So, um, talk to her. They're probably the most that, you know, I or Jeff as a pastor or Jenna or other women in our congregation could do as individuals is just to say, just to affirm your experience and say, yeah, uh, that's worth you know, digging into more, we would immediately refer you to counseling to uh, people who could um, help and would have the resources to bear on for both husband and wife and dig into this separately together and walk with you long-term with it. Sure. Yeah. And you know what, I'm just going to make a plug again for the second week in a row, or maybe we skipped weeks um, for the let's talk about panel for the women's yeah. faith event, because I'm sure that 
um, knowing who leads and plans these events, they've put a lot of uh, thought and mm -hmm. intentionality into who is on the panel and who will be speaking or sharing and leading the session. And so, um, hey, if you're a woman and you would like to talk about these things with another woman or many, um, the married edition is on July 20th and the singles edition is on July 30th. So awesome. check out our events page for those. Awesome. And if you're a guy and you want to talk about this with a guy, come chat with me. You know, I don't have a panel discussion coming, but uh, we can talk. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So um, what does the Bible specifically say about same-sex relationships? This is something that we touched on a little bit in mm -hmm. week one. Um, and you had said you know that the design for marriage is between a man and a woman because this is what God designed before the fall. Mm -hmm. This is before sin entered the picture. Well, sin entered the picture, but how do we know that it's not permissible? Mm -hmm. Like, does the Bible explicitly say at any point that same-sex relationships are not what God designed? Instead right. of just saying, God did design this, did he also say, but God didn't, like, does the Bible say God did not design this, right? Does it mm -hmm. equally and oppositely state that? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question and a huge question. And again, a hotly debated question, the right? Question. Yeah. The, yes. Um, so a couple, a couple of thoughts. One, um, God doesn't have to tell us a thing is wrong explicitly in order for us to understand that because the point of scripture is not to give us a rule book of here's what's allowed and here's what's not allowed. The point of scripture is to tell the story of how we were intended to be, how we've fallen from that and, and how we get back to where we were intended to be. So it's holding on to the image of how we were intended to be and what we will be in the future that guides all of the rest of interpretation. So if you're going and you're like, look, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where God says, Hey, same-sex uh, attraction or, or same-sex relationship is wrong at all times and all places for all peoples, and therefore, you know, maybe it's right. Uh, well, then you're you're not understanding the point of like how Scripture is intending itself to be used. It's not a rule book. It is a it's a it's a picture of who we were. It's a story. It's a picture of who we were and where we're going and the process in between. So we have to hold that pre-fall and post-fall picture in our minds in order to say, okay, is this, is the questions I'm asking and, and the, the way I'm interpreting these other commands, is it, um, is it looking like that, those pictures, or is it, you know, am I trying to kind of creatively reinterpret it? So, um, so that I can do what I want, essentially. Um, it is, I'll put it this way. It's possible to get around in one way or another, every, uh, every discussion in scripture about same-sex attraction. You know, you could go to Leviticus, Leviticus and you could say, well, hey, Leviticus says, you know, um, no same-sex relationships, but it also says no wearing fabric, you know, with mixed, uh, or no wearing clothes with mixed fabrics. So why do we hold on to one and not the other? Um, you could go to Romans. You could say, well, Paul says that it's not natural. And does he mean not natural before the fall or not natural after the fall? Does he mean natural in the sense of, it, it can't generate a child or does he mean natural in the sense of, you know, uh, no one does it or no, no, no thing in nature does this. Uh, so you can get around any of the passages um, if you want to. And I can't, you know, me or someone else, we can't 
really convince anyone otherwise, because it comes down to, again, authority and like interpretive strategy of saying, well, you know, we know now better than they knew then. So there must be culturally, you know, cultural ways we can get around the stuff. So all, all I can say is from a sort of a historical Christian perspective, um, scripture never paints a same sex relationship in a positive light. They're always negative. Um, and uh, the church throughout history until the mid 1900s has always um, understood scripture to be saying same sex attraction or same sex. I, I want to be specific here. Same sex relationships and activity are not within God's design for marriage, not permissible. Um, some of the debate, some of the discussion is around, well, is being same sex attracted wrong or is just same sex activity and this is where the question of pre-fall, post-fall comes in. The, the way I would understand it is um, pre-fall um, sexual orientation. In the, and we should remember homosexuality as, a, as an orientation I mean, didn't, like that idea didn't exist until the late 1800s in Germany for the first time, right? So there's no such thing as a homosexual in the Bible um, because there's no, there's no, sense of set identity in an attractional orientation. Um, it's, it's just about activity, not identity. So going back to pre-fall, post-fall, right? Um, one of the ways I think we are fallen is that pre-fall, we were, um, uh, all attractions would have been rightly ordered towards the goal of marriage in that one flesh covenantal way. And it's because of the fall that some attractions become dis- Ordered. I don't mean disordered in a, in a pejorative sense. I mean, no longer ordered as they were before, mm -hmm. meaning um, some men will be attracted to men, some women will be attracted to women. Um, and so that, that, um, that being a fallen part of our order, I don't, uh, I don't think that you, you can say to somebody like, hey, your attraction or your orientation is inherently sinful. There's something about the way you were made that is sinful and you didn't choose it. And it's more sinful than, you know, all the heterosexual people out here. So it is a attraction that, that scripture calls us to resist, um, to fight against the temptation and to live in chaste faithfulness in a single or married state, uh, whichever. And by married, I mean, in the one flesh covenantal sense we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. Um, have you read people to be loved by Preston Sprinkle? I have not. It's on, it's in my Amazon box and I need to, but I, I was going to, uh, when I was preparing for this, I had written down a list of books and that was the top one on this yeah. topic. People to be loved is very good from what I've been yeah. told by those who have read, I've it. read it and it's really great. Okay. Um, holy sexuality is also really good. Um, is God anti-gay by Sam Alberry is very good. Uh, washed and waiting is good. Yeah, I would say something I appreciate about Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved, is he does his uh, he does a good job of trying to walk through each passage that any person could point to. And mm -hmm. he comes in saying, let's not have a um, let's not already have a decision of what this passage means. Let's try and like walk through it together and actually mm -hmm. like as if he was a pastor preaching through this passage yeah. Yeah. and be able to say, 
can we really point to this one as a reason for or against same-sex relationships? If we can, what is it? Um, and I think he does it in a very fair way. And um, anyways, I know there are quite a few people at Faith who um, have read this book. We've talked about it. I think it's well-written, well-researched. So Good. I'll, I should move it to the top of the stack. All right. Yeah. Get it out of your cart and into your hands, Joey. That's right. Everywhere fine books are sold. Yes. Uh, all right. So, man, we've talked about a lot of different challenges that mm-hmm. a Christian could face or even a non-believer would face mm-hmm. in um, in relationship to just being a sexual being. So what are some specific ways, in addition to prayer, we could influence others towards godly living? So mm-hmm. the person who sent in this question also gave some context for why they're asking this question i'm sure all of us could fill in the blank here with our own mm-hmm. context of knowing somebody um whether a believer or a non-believer pursuing things that are disordered in a way mm-hmm. like you had, that language you had used so maybe people pursuing same-sex relationships transitioning um individuals or a couple engaging in sex before marriage or outside of marriage or I mean fill in the blank there's a whole range in sexual sin and so I guess maybe answer this question in two ways depending on whether this person is a believer or Mm non-believer it would need to be approached differently Mm -hmm. so can you answer it both ways yeah uh huge question um I think my my basic answer is going to be wrap this person or these people up in community, you know, wrap them up in the regular ways of of living your life. Um, oh boy, for a for a non believer, right? For someone who's not a Christian, someone who has not uh, claimed uh, claimed that Jesus has bought them, uh, bought and paid for them. Uh, you know, they've been bought with a price. Someone for whom, yeah, you know, they are, uh, they are their own, yeah. you know, they're their own. Um, and, and they have no higher uh, calling for that. In that context, you can, you can talk about, um, you know, I probably wouldn't use a, a lot of scripture in it. You know, hey, God says what you're doing is wrong. Um, I would probably do what I heard another pastor say, sociology is finally catching up with theology and point to guys like Regnerus and Euchre who are writing in uh, premarital sex in America um, or women like Christine Emba who are writing in Rethinking Sex. Like, hey, we think we're free and this is destroying us. We are less happy. We're more anxious. Actually, in this sexually permissive culture, people are by and large having less sex than before. Yeah. Um, because it's so fraught. It's so, you know, you never know if you're going to get, uh, uh, you're going to find out tomorrow that last night's hookup was, uh, you thought it was consensual and now it's not. Um, so there's that very real risk. But in, in uh, Regnerus and Euchre's Premarital Sex in America, they, they list the top 10 myths and, you know, myths like, hey, moving in together is a great first step towards marriage and, and show with basic sociological research and data that no, it's not. It actually makes it more likely that you're going to get divorced or not stick together. Um, they show that, that they're the ones that show that pornography is so influential in, in ex- changing the expectations of men and women in sexual relationships and overall appearance and all of those things. And so they go through, you know, a huge number of popular culture myths that they, from a non-Christian perspective and a straight sociological perspective say, the data is just not there. These aren't true. Yeah. Um, so I, I would probably, you know, camp in that area. Um, 
for can I Go add? Ahead. I'd also yeah. just say, all right, so there's somebody that I love that I would say practices a disordered attraction. And in my perspective and where Nathan and I've just decided to, um, how we can, I guess, the, in this person's words, influence them towards godly living. I mean, this person doesn't have the Holy Spirit to be able to understand or discern what godly living would be. Mm-hmm. And so anything that we say, even helpful or well-meaning would probably be off-putting to this person. And so our job is to just tell them about Christ. Like our job is to just continue, not in light of their sexuality, not because Mm -hmm. of this disordered attraction, but just because anyone and everyone should hear about the gospel. And so don't start with, don't come at it with a specific angle of this is wrong and you need Christ because this is wrong, but just we all need Christ. And so I can't expect this person's practices to change without knowing Christ first. Mm-hmm. And that's right. where we need to start is just continuing to share about the testimony of what God that has done in our lives. And mm-hmm. um, just the great God that we have come to know and to serve and then I think other things fall in place once that an individual accepts and experiences the radical love of God and is transformed by the Holy Spirit these other things will come but I can't expect I'm not going to do the job of the Holy Spirit for Mm -hmm. this person I can't Mm -hmm. convince them that what they're doing is wrong and they should somehow be living a different way when that's not motivating to them. They don't know the God of the universe yet. So I would just add that. For sure. There's a big difference between influencing someone to godly living and influencing them towards God. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, a, a big part of the argument uh, has been that, Hey, godly living is actually better for you. It's more conducive to your flourishing. And that's true. No one yeah. really wants to hear that. Um, but it's important to, to remember that all longings in our hearts, all longings are ultimately longings for God. And so the person who is longing to belong, longing to be accepted, longing to be loved is really longing for God. Uh, Christian or not, all of my longings to be accepted and loved are really longings for God to accept and love. Um, So however you can point a person uh, towards the ultimate fulfillment of their longing in Christ instead of in this relationship or that desire or that orientation, um, point it towards Christ. And you're more likely to influence a person towards God, especially if you are being more of the attractional, um, I got to use that word carefully. Cause I don't mean like, you know, church attraction, um, or seeker sensitive, whatever. I mean, you can think of God, does God push us or does God draw us? Um, and God draws us through his own beauty and goodness. He doesn't push us with his commands. He draws us with his love. And so our job is not to push people, but to draw them. Right. So. Yep. Yeah. And also another plug for Preston Sprinkle's book, because that's what he talks about. So oh, does he really? Yeah, oh man. I guess I need to read end. it. Yeah. 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 It's great. So me and Preston. Yeah. We're tight. Yeah. You don't even know that you could be best friends, but you guys, I feel like we potential. are already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. So then what about, how do you speak into this space for somebody who is a believer? Mm-hmm. For someone who, who is a believer, uh, it's a balance. Okay. So on the one hand, we can't just say, Hey, the Holy Spirit's going to do it all because the Holy Spirit tends to use us, right? Other people in community and scripture and 
scripture together, right? So we can't shy away from the hard passages like first Corinthians six and seven or Matthew five, and just be like, you know, in their own personal reading, the Holy Spirit's going to make it clear to them because part of the way God uses part of the way this, what part of one of the means of the spirit's movement in people's lives is other people. So we have a responsibility to care about the discipleship of the people next to us. On the other hand, it's not all us. So it's not entirely on us to make sure that we're always pointing out to people what they're doing wrong. Because when we get into that mode where we're like, no, I'm the Holy Spirit. I need to make sure they know what we're doing wrong. We never hit all the sins. You know, we never get all of the person's sins, only the ones that right now, culturally, we're like, this is a big deal and we need to talk about it. Um, So we never, you know, we never get in each other's faces about being prideful uh, or being greedy, you know, avaricious or uh, being gluttonous, even though um, pride in the medieval conception is the worst. Uh, it's the root of the seven deadly sins, but no one's, you know, never, when was the last time someone came up for church discipline um, because of their prideful attitude? Yeah. We don't, we don't get in people's faces for that. And that one, at least Thomas Aquinas would argue that the carnal sins are least spiritually damaged, even if they're most um, uh, community damaging, they're the least spiritual damaging to the person in their relationship with God. It's the cold sins like pride and envy and avarice that are most spiritually damaging. But Mm -hmm. anyway, that's a side conversation there. So um, we can't, so what I was saying is we can't on the one hand, just sit back and say the Holy Spirit will do it all. Or on the other hand, say, uh, you know, lean in and say, no, I got to do it all. So we have to prayerfully and wisely discern when do I need to be prophetic and when do I need to be pastoral? Um, And I use those two words somewhat in contrast because a prophet is responsible to a message, whether the people hear the message or not. A pastor is responsible to a people so that he can communicate a message. It doesn't mean you water down the message. It means you, you know, you dole out the message at the right time in the right way, given what you know of the person in front of you. A prophet doesn't care. They're just like, Hey, here's truth. Take it or leave it. Right. And a pastor says, Hey, I'm here. Um, I'd like to share with you a little bit about something, you know, so I, you know, I'll admit, um, or confess, like I've screwed this up on both sides for sure. I have leaned in. I've been like, they need to know that they're not doing the right thing. Right. And I've sat back and been like, I'll just pray for the Holy spirit to change their heart. Right. Both sides. Of course, I always want to lean in when, the sin the other person has committed is something that like personally offends me. Like they've been rude or mean or whatever. And I want to sit back when it sounds like it's going to be a hard conversation. Like, you know, you really shouldn't be doing X, Y, Z funny how that works. Um, but because we're called to be in close community, we're called to be in each other's lives. We're called to be family caring for one another. We're called, like we studied in Galatians before coming to Matthew, we're called to, you know, go to one another and say, Hey, if you're struggling with living out one of these, fruits of the spirit, one of these fruit of the spirit, singular, uh, like faithfulness. Um, let's talk about that. What kind of community support do you need? Right. If we're talking about a person who, um, let's say we're talking about a single mom with two kids who cannot make ends meet without another breadwinner in the house. If the church goes to her and says, you cannot live with this guy, are we going to pick up the tab or not? If it's family, you do. And that's what the family is supposed to be. So uh, we got to be there to be practical. We've got to be there to be prophetic. We've got to be there to be pastoral. Those all started with P and I didn't intend that, but it's just Perfect. beautiful when it happens that way. Yes. I lo- that's great. Let's 
that's let's end there. Yeah, that's we're gonna uh, end on a high note. note. Yeah. All right, one last question for you, Joey. Um, how do we talk about these things with our kids and our teens? That would be, I mean, huge age range here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like sure. when I say these things, all right, let's talk. How do we talk about gender and sex and being a sexual being, sexual wholeness, pursuit of purity? And anything in between, how do we talk about these things with our kids? Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, I'm not an expert. I've got one kid. um, She's 11. My wife is primarily the one talking to her about this. Um, When Anna and I talk about these issues, I'm like answering the logical question. When Jenna and Anna talk about this stuff, they're talking about the feeling side and, uh, and all that. So I'm not an expert. So I'll just say that. My thoughts. Given that I'm not an expert, don't listen to these, but I'll give them to you anyway. Um, One is, you know, we all know people who grew up where their families did not talk about this at all, right? That is not a good approach because then you you don't even know how to talk about this when you're married. It's not like you suddenly become fluent in talking about um, your own sexual desires or any of this stuff, right? Yeah. So, So on the one hand, talk about it. It's a normal part of conversation. Get over the awkwardness of the first... 15 times, whatever. And by the hundredth time you've had a conversation about this, like about bodies, about gender, about sex, about attraction, about all those things, like it becomes second nature. On the other hand, don't take all the mystery out of it, right? You know, this is still a sacred thing. And there's this spiritual unitive bonding power of sex that we don't want to try to explain Mm -hmm. to the sense where it's like, you know, if we're, if, if we talk about it as often as we talk about anything else, then it means nothing. Right. If we never talk about it, then it means everything, right? Mm-hmm. So we got to stay away from those things. Yep. Um, we've recommended different book series at Faith in the past. Um, I'm blanking on the name of one, but I think we could include the link in the show notes. So you click there to find it. It's just basically age graded. So it's like two and under, two to four, four to 10, 10 and up or something like that. Um, we've used those books with our daughter and they're helpful for starting the conversation. They're weirdly formal. Like we're going to sit down and read this book together, but probably better if you just uh, put it in the stack of books and grab it every once in a while. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think, as I was reflecting on this question, trying to figure out how to answer it, I think one of the key issues we have to wrestle with, and I don't have an answer here, but one of the key issues we have to wrestle with is we can't both say to our kids, hey, you can do whatever you want in life. You're the one who makes calls the shots. You're the one who decides like you, you know, you do you and all of this, you belong to yourself type language. And at the same time say, uh, but also God says that actually there's limits, right? Because what happens when your desire for experience or self-expression comes up against one of God's limits? That's when you have to decide either, oh, I, I don't belong to myself. And so I have to abide by these limits or uh, you know what, Christianity is not getting me where I want to go in life. So chuck it. Or I still like the whole Christianity thing, but I'm going to go trying to f- try and find a more progressive version that removes the limits that I have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can't say to our kids, Hey, do whatever you want, follow your heart, find your passion, you know, make promises, break promises, just do whatever feels right to you. We never really say it like that, but the way we talk yes. about promises and marriages and commitments sometimes can come across that way. We can't both say that and say, but God puts limits over here, right? Those two things don't go together. The limits are there because we don't belong to ourselves. So we have to do both. Like, Hey, when we talk about marriage, we talk about like, this is a lifelong commitment. 
And I made a commitment that I'm bound to. I don't get to just walk away. And that's better, right? That is, that is good. That is better for me um, by far than keeping my options open. Yeah. To say it is hard, but I stay. It is difficult, but I choose it every day because I don't belong to myself anymore, right? I belong to my wife. I belong to my husband. I belong to my kids. I belong to my God. And so I don't get to make these decisions anymore. So we, we've got to really, I think, figure out how to reemphasize the value of, or not the value of, we get, we get to reemphasize the recognition that, hey, if you've come to Jesus, you don't belong to yourself in anything, job choice, where you live, who you live with, all of that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, thoughts, not an expert. Well, I'm definitely not an expert. And it's hard to say if anything that we've started to talk about with our four-year-old is um, a good choice or not, because we haven't been able to see how it turns out yet. But mm -hmm. um, I did go through a parenting course that someone had recommended to me in this topic. And I would say my biggest uh, takeaway is to redefine the pursuit of purity. Yes. Not that, that yes. it's something that is too, that you have and could potentially lose right. or could degrade over time or anything like that. And that starts and ends once you get married, right. um, you know, or ends once you get married, I should say. So redefined the pursuit of purity as pursuing a relationship with the one who is pure. And so that go is not just in terms of sex, but it's everything in between. It's our thoughts. It's our words, our language, um, how we talk to one another and how we talk about this topic with one another, how we think about this topic. And um, it doesn't end when you get married, but every person who is married should continue to pursue purity in the relationship with the one who is pure and continue to get to know the one who is pure, which is, of course, Jesus. And so, Again, if you redefine it like that, it's not mm -hmm. something to be gained or lost, but it is something that is ongoing. It's transforming. You can mess up and continue to learn from the one who is pure and pursue that. Mm -hmm. No, that's really good because and I'm glad I'm really glad you brought it up because yeah, it's very true. You know, purity is not a line you cross or you stay on this side of the line versus that side of the line. Like it's a, it's a direction. It's a path that you follow. And every time you can think of it as like a road with a shoulder on either side, you know, every time you veer off onto the shoulder, you get back on the road, right? The point is to stay on the road, moving in that direction towards God, towards the one who is pure, not veering off to the sides. So sexual, the Christian sexual ethic, sexuality is something you build, not something you break. Well, we've got, okay, we've got a lot of books that have been tossed out and Ooh. a lot of, um, I guess, authors' names. So maybe we just need to link them all in our show notes and people can so. start there. And hey, if parents have questions, you're a great resource. Kendra's a great resource. And um, I mean, I, I'm thankful that our church is intergenerational. You could point to a lot of uh, families with older kids that you could talk to them. They're accessible. Like I'm thankful for that. They're mm -hmm. open and they're willing to say what they did. And I'm sure that they're willing to admit where they messed up. And so thankfully for that, we could talk to them as well. And they have the benefit of seeing what they have done over a long period of time and see how it's transformed their kids. So for sure. When in doubt, there. talk to somebody who has parented a child all the way to adulthood. Yes. Please. Yes. <laughs> it, not us. <laughs> <laughs>